So, welcome back to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. We are rejoining King Crimson with their second album, In the Wake of Poseidon. So, King Crimson's debut album did quite well, and they were pretty well received on tour. All was not a bed of roses in the court of the Crimson King, and shortly after the tour, the band completely dissolved. But King Crimson had a name, a growing reputation, and a recording contract, so Rob got back to work even though everyone else left him. So he and Peter Simfeld wrote a new album based on songs they had knocking around from the first one, which is why basically this album will sound pretty similar. Uh, he called Greg Lake back into the studio as a session singer in exchange for a PA system that Greg Lake could take to his new band, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. He brought back a bunch of other session musicians, Michael Giles on drums, Greg Lake on vocals, and then Peter Giles on bass, Keith Tippett on piano, Mel Collins on saxophone and flute, and uh, one song featuring the future vocalist Gordon Haskell. So he assembled all of these these bands back together for a second album in The Wake of Poseidon. So we start The Wake of Poseidon with Peace, A Beginning. So he'll sprinkle a handful of these acoustic ditties throughout the album, and there's not much to them. They're just really, really beautiful little acoustic ditties that will give us um, a little bit of respite from the intensity to come. I just really like the uh, the tone of the, the guitar. I like the way it's presented in, in a mix. Um, like I was saying before, when I when you know um, I was listening to it earlier, my um, my headphone wasn't working properly, and I was just getting the acoustic guitar in my left ear, and it sounded like he was playing duff notes all over the place. And as soon as I got the connection back in, it just fitted in a way that was really interesting so you know you're hearing someone who's got big picture when they when they when they're constructing their music and i think it just goes to show uh, robert fripp's confidence in his own abilities this album you know the the fact that everything's fallen apart all the band members are gone and he's going well you know the last last album did really well people you know <laughs> have given us the 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 rain to 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 do this recording there's confidence in him and he's got the confidence to continue. There's a factoid in there about the first album um, where I think the manager has actually uh, remortgaged the house a little bit in order to, to pay for um, some of the recording time. So like, there's, there's this real belief in, in these, these musicians and then for it to just fall apart like that is tragic. But, you know, they, they, they're obviously still communicating because you know they're, they're coming in and session sessioning on this this record but despite all of that to me it feels kind of it does feel a bit chaotic it feels like there's fractured relationships here 
it's not it's not as cool as the previous album. Yeah, there's some good tracks on here. Um, the, you know, cat people, cat people, cat, cat people, <laughs> yeah, uh, cat food. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the sustenance of cat of cat people, um, obviously, is is a great track. But even that is, it sounds reminiscent of other things. It doesn't feel like they're there. So, you know, it reminds me of um, "Can't Catch Me" by Chuck Berry, which is something that you know John Lennon ripped off when he was doing come together you know it's it feels like their best stuff still isn't really their best stuff you know yeah i uh i'll go ahead and somewhat concur with that because this notion of this being somewhat of a remake i might be in the minority in thinking this is better than in the court of the crimson king legitimately and i did not used to feel that way when i first heard these two you know Back to back, side by side, whatever you want to call it. Um, I was like, oh no, it's just they, they just remade the same album again. I'm, I'm, I'm already bored. This is the same thing. And I've completely changed my feelings about it. Ian, I think you made this comment earlier on, you know, the first album, Robert Fripp doesn't have complete creative control yet. And in this album, he does. And I mean, all of the writing credits are mostly him and, that, and no one else. But it's surprising how similar uh, the material still is. It's certainly not just a collection of outtakes from the first album. I actually think it's better. Because the album construction is basically exactly the same. Yeah. So he, he starts with pictures of a city, which we'll talk about in a second. So that's intense 21st century living. Uh, then Cadence and Cascade, a smooth I Talk to the Wind style ditty. Then we come back for In the Wake of Poseidon, an epic Mellotron. I guess Cat Food's kind of a curveball. And then we have Devil's Triangle. Basically, just it is the court of the Crimson King, but in triangle form. <laughs> the fir- is, that, is that the first sampling? Yeah, they. I mean, they, they sample themselves. themselves. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that 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 is recycling, isn't it? But um, I think it's like it's the sort of recycling that's good for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I used to just full heartedly think this was the better album, and I think. I personally will just always have a little bit of love for this album in a, like on a personal level. Uh, I think if you were new to Prague, In the Court of the Crimson Kings, 100% the better album. Like, it's their dark side of the moon. It's just a great album. It goes down smooth. I think if you enjoyed that, you can just do it all again <laughs> uh, with In the Wake of Poseidon. Hmm. I think we all had similar journeys on this album i always thought in the wake of the poseidon is my favorite king crimson album but listening to them back to back i 100 percent picked up on this being a remake following the same structure but i think for me personally i think the highs are better right i think in the wake of poseidon the titular track is probably my favorite king crimson song and it's one of my all-time favorite prog rock songs um i really enjoyed the cadence and cascade i love that transition i just like, I like epitaph however on the low side uh, pictures of a city. I'll just tell you what I wrote down in my notes. Loud neighbors might complain. <laughs> <laughs> and then cat food is by far my least favorite song. Um, I hate that song. So I think in the court is consistently more enjoyable, but this reach reaches higher highs to me, but they are very similar. Yeah. I mean, we're coming into a world where there's going to be a lot more jazz. Like we're seeing where King Crimson's about to go. We're on that train strapped in we bought the ticket and uh here we go pictures of a city the first first song on the album how do we all feel about it 
Brian's right. Uh, it is loud. The neighbors might complain, and I'm all for it. Um, I think it's an even if, if we're if we're just going for pure you know jazz freakouts. I think this one's even more focused than 21st Century Schizoid Man. Greg's vocals are even better, and it's funny because yeah, lyrically it even kind of follows a similar format. <laughs> It really starts to feel like they're aping themselves, but um, I think it works. I think it works even better, and the riff is even more fun as far as the when the horn section comes in. It's a great song. Yeah, I like the uh, yeah the guitars really good in this one. It's it's um, some rare usage of the of the fuzz. You know, it's not just used as an effect like it often is in this time. It's like it's it's used to bring out the harmonic elements of the guitar. It's it's. He's playing it like it's an instrument, um, and I think, yeah, these sort of early fuzz boxes that you're getting, you know, like I'm saying, you know, from where where he's based in London, going down to Denmark Street, these handmade little boxes of joy that I that I love so much. He's playing on some like really good examples that even today people are like sought after those those devices, you know. Yeah, it sounds good. I like it. And and he's paired it here with um, a saxophone. Like this is this is harsh stuff. Yeah, and 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 f- believe it or not, you know when when people were first using fuzz pedals, that's what they were trying to recreate. It's a horn section. Like, and this is what I mean about Fripp using it like an instrument. At this time, when people are first using it, they're using it to fill in the parts where the horns may be. And I think like it, obviously he's gonna kind of flag up his guitar more than he did for the last album. Obviously, I, I think as he becomes the only member of King Crimson. <laughs> but it's mostly the acoustic that shines out in this. Which we will absolutely talk about in in the next song, Cadence and Cascade, which is Peter Sinfeld's fantastical allegory about groupies. So a few things at the top. You will notice that it is a different person singing. Yes, this is Gordon Haskell, who will sing the next album. So he was brought in for this iteration of King Crimson as Greg Lake was on his way out. Yes, there is a guide track vocal of Greg Lake. No, I have no idea why it was deleted and redone. Yes, it sounds amazing. I think Gordon does a fine job. We will get into all of this, because obviously I think this gives King Crimson its feeling of instability. And let's talk about it. So this introduces us to a subject we will talk about for the first and last time ever on this podcast... Sex. Eroticism is absolutely missing from prog rock. This will be probably the only song uh, on this uh, entire series that will really feature anything erotic at all. Very interesting because obviously it's in every other part of, or every other genre of music, but it uh, was erased, banished from prog rock forever. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of prog rock bands I can think of tend to be filled with these public school boys. And, and when I say public school boys, public school... In the UK sense. And and it's like there's, there's two public schools in the UK. There's there's the public school where most people go, and then there's the, pub, the thing that's called public school, which are the old tradition schools, that are like boarding schools just for boys, that, you know, you send your child there for more than I earn in a year in primary school so you know this is prohibitively expensive to go to school yeah that doesn't that doesn't make for 
raging hormones. Well, it does rage, make for raging hormones, but that they, these people are not stunted and confused. Yeah, these these, these yeah. are boys who know nothing about girls, and so you know, in Genesis' case, they're, they're talking about stories in the Bible and all sorts. But it's the girls are not the subject matter. It's um, missing. Yeah. <laughs> well. This isn't the only time, which is funny because this is the only song that Greg doesn't sing on. But uh, I I will challenge you there a little bit, Ian. Greg does uh, have his little shot at eroticism later with Living Sin from Trilogy, and it works about Uh, as well as this song (laughs) in terms of being erotic, I suppose. Well, and then then John Anderson also... (laughs) (laughs) Long, long distance reach around. <laughs> no, okay, come on. No, uh, okay. No, I, it is just a very interesting one that I, I hate to be so crass. I just, you have to note it that uh, obviously it's a subject matter that's in every other type of music, um, but just was completely absent from prog rock. But I think you, I think you hit it right on the head there, because even though they're trying to write something that sounds erotic, they're taking something that you know most people understand as groupies, but they're still the the lyrical content makes it sound like a, a tale of medieval courtesans, like it's <laughs> ridiculous. So it's only these little public school nerds that are going to try and write it this way, right? <laughs> I don't even know if these guys actually are, but it's just it's just something that seems common amongst you know yeah. the proggy types. Um. <laughs> I've, I've got a, a Bill Bruford quote I've been sitting on um, in, in regards to women and their interest in prog rock and quote, women, quote, generally and ratherly stubbornly stayed away. I, I think prog rock has the earned reputation of being very male men focused. The, the musicians themselves, the fans. I mean, do, do you think, like, they were jealous of, like, Led Zeppelin? Uh, I, because I think they would have been a big band, at this, as in, or they're a popular band at this point. I actually genuinely don't think there would have been a difference between people into them and Led Zeppelin in a general sense. I think later when Prague got real Prague, I mean, at this mm. point, they're all just club acts. Also, you've got Greg Lake fronting this for their first tour. You know, it's as good as Jim Morrison. Still, can you imagine taking a date? Um, yeah, go on. We, we always have in our heads when we listen to this sort of stuff that it, it's later. Yeah. Like, this really is, this is this is still 69, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's still 69, you know? Like, their proper touring and stuff is still kind of, still not, not quite figured out yet, you know, there's... Yeah. Um, people aren't playing in big venues. I don't know what it's like, how easy it is to actually go and see these bands. Um, but it's, it's, it's early doors still. Well, there's something that, Brian, you were hitting on there a second ago, and you know what the audience must have looked like or what we think they looked like. Uh, there is a rather delightful uh, video that, thank God this still exists, I found it. And not to skip ahead a few tracks, but they do pantomime cat food on top of the pops. So if you can imagine the smiley glad hand host and people dancing to this. Tap dancing, no less. (laughs) This actually happens. And they are, they're miming their way through your favorite song on top of the pops. It's surreal. It is 
It's fantastic. You have to see it. Wow. I assume it's their only performance on top of the book. Oh, yes. Yeah. They were not asked to return. <laughs> uh, only band to get a lifetime ban. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, so, as we all noted, someone else is singing this song. And it's Gordon Heskell, who is Robert Fripp's friend from way back in the day. And he needed someone to just sing the song because Greg Lake had already left by this point. So he asks his old friend Gordon to come and sing on the song. So Gordon was an R&B enthusiast. But I was like, yep, yeah, I'll do a, a, a solid for my buddy and sang this song, which I think he did a very good job. But he will be their singer for the next album and hate every single second of all of it because he was an R&B singer more in the vein of like of the Moody Blues where he wanted to do like kind of orchestrally 60-ish R&B e-pop. And uh, we won't be talking about the next album, Lizard, but it is even more of a jazz nonsense explosion. And uh, Gordon, by all accounts, hated every second of it. They capture him laughing on tape about how stupid the lyrics are in the next album. And then uh, he goes on tour and his voice is at a different key than than Greg Lake's. And they refused to <laughs> change keys for him. And in short order, he leaves. And I think the inclusion of him on this song is fine. As I say, I think he does a very good job. But I think the thing that will become very unsettling about King Crimson is the feeling of instability. And I think for me, I I really do like having like my John, Paul, George, and Ringo. We're like, that's the band. And we see how that combination of people grow and mold over an artistic life. Whereas in King Crimson, it's just exploding all the time. And so I always get the feeling like it's Robert Fripp and some guys, like just some people. So I find it to be a really unsettling I don't know why, on a very like deep subconscious level, it's a really unsettling experience. So is it is is it Robert Fripp? Is he is he hard to work with? Does does he scare people off with his Alistair Crowley stuff? Or what, what is it? Like reading between the lines, because he's given a million interviews, he sounds like he has a lot of theories about stuff. And as we know all know about people with a lot of theories about stuff, I'm sure it means that they're very interesting co-workers. <laughs> Mm. And uh, so I imagine you're out on tour with uh, Robert Fripp and he has thoughts about what you should play and thoughts about how you should sing and whatever. <laughs> and uh, also by this point, he's the main creative force of the band. I think it would be quite a bit. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Well, and I think the horn player, I forget if it's from this album or the next one, said it was really weird because basically he just take sections of our playing and then apply them to songs. And that's actually another thing I really noticed starting with this song. There's not a riff you can hang your hat on. You know, the songs are nice sometimes, but basically it's just bubbling and squeaking in one ear and then the next ear all the time. Mm, that's um, interesting. It's, it's almost like there's something modern about that way of making music, that kind of patchwork quilt way of producing music that really was not normal at the time. You know, you think about the Beatles and having to perform your part. You don't have a part, you play the whole song. Yeah, the idea of just sampling stuff is just, uh, must have been really alien. Yeah. And and quite unsettling if you're there to do a job as a session musician. It can't have been a nice environment to work in. 
the session players of Steely Dan talk about this as well. Mm-hmm. As they say, it was really unsettling to come in one day and your part's just being re-recorded by some other session player. So I think it must have been kind of unpleasant to be in King Crimson. And uh, as, as Bill Bruford will later say about joining King Crimson, it was like going over the wall into East Berlin. <laughs> but we'll talk about that in another episode when we talk about 70s King Crimson. But we've had our fun, and we come back to In the Wake of Poseidon. Basically just Epitaph Part 2. How do you all feel about it? It's an evocative title. I'll give it that. I was trying to think about what the lyrics are. So we've not talked about the album cover on this, but they have uh, 12 archetypes, as far as I understand. So there's a bunch of faces, and there's like the jester and the emperor and stuff like that. And I think they're supposed to be like archetypes, something to do with um, elements, something like that. And uh, at first I thought this song was about them. And then I think it's actually just something to do with, like, the futility of human endeavor or, I don't know, something else. Vietnam. (laughs) Um, But uh, I can't believe how heavy this song is for only having some acoustic guitar, some Mellotron, and some drums. Like, I can't believe how hard this song goes picking some of the softer instruments yeah this this song is huge i love it i don't know it, it's very evocative like it, it fills you with like dread um i don't know i just it's it's very powerful I'm, I'm a huge fan of this song it's my favorite greg lake vocal of all time I, I like he absolutely nails it he goes out on a high here i don't know who else could have landed this vocal i think greg lake is perfect for slow songs I, I think he can just hold a note and hold it so yeah. well and hold it so epically. His voice is almost a Mellotron in itself. <laughs> I feel like Greg fills up the song with his voice as well there, uh, where there's just so much Greg all the time. And I'm loving it, but there's just so much Greg. Uh, Ian, you alluded to it earlier, but the, the album cover is is pretty interesting. And it's a big shift because from in the court that was um you know kind of a friend of the band this was a the 12 archetypes or it's also called the 12 faces of humankind was by a dutch painter named tamo tajong sure i said that wrong but it was painted in uh, 1967 uh so this has like nothing to do with with the album and i tried really hard i couldn't really find any information about it like why do they choose this I was also wondering if this is a painting like where is it and couldn't i couldn't find anything about it oh that's interesting yeah because I was going to say, I think for me, it's a, obviously not as striking as in the Quartz album cover with just that face up close. But I love it for this album. As in, I think it's weird and wonderful and I love the colors and all that. The, the first album cover, they, they talk about um, seeing it for the first time and being like, oh, that's, that's the face. You get the impression that, you know, as a band, that meant something to them. But with there not really being a band now... Yeah, it's like what? What is the context of this? Like, is there any group thought linked to this piece of art? Was this something they knew about when they were working on the first one? I don't know. It's it just seems really dis- disjointed. It just I don't understand what it means, and I don't feel like there's anything to help me <laughs> discover that. I don't know. It's just friends. Robert wishes he had. I guess. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Robert. So we come to the one and only hit single of this album, Cat Food. I personally think it's a fun enough song. I can understand why, in the world of King Crimson, this would be the single. 
As Gordon Haskell said of Keith Tippett's piano playing on the song, it just sounds like a cat's walking on the piano. (laughs) To which Robert Fripp (laughs) replied, well, Keith actually knows what he's doing. (laughs) So there's a lot of jazz on this song. A lot of stuff going on here. It's a very busy song. My read on it is like they're a robot that listened to a Beatles song and then failed to actually process it because it's got the British humor. They just didn't quite pass the Turing test. I I, I think this is based on that Chuck Berry track. Um, you can't catch me. It's a Chuck Berry track. And it's the bass line that does it for me. So it's, it's a Greg Lake thing. I think he's he's picked up on that track, and it's it's the same it's the same song that um, John Lennon uses for um, "Come Together." So it's like, so it's interesting that you said it sounds like a, a Beatles track that's not quite a Beatles track, and it's I, I don't know if that's correct or if that's where he's got his influence. It's just what I hear when I when I when I listen to that song. Um, I actually really love the sound of that bass line. It's really good. I- I was going to say, I actually find it to be a really fun song in the way that many Beatles songs are fun. The The backstory, just real quick to this, is that they were all on the tour bus, hopped up on methamphetamines, and decided to write a humorous song about processed foods, which is where the song comes from, which perhaps explains why it's a pretty disjointed affair. I was going to ask, I mean, humor in music seems to be a pretty British thing. I can't imagine that, that um, like, I think American music is too self-serious or maybe Americans are too self-serious or too earnest to ever get funny. And, like, this is, in their way, they're trying to be funny. I think that there's, you might have hit nail on the head there with it being a cultural thing, but I think there's, a, there's certain artists who are able to, like, take their music very seriously without taking themselves too seriously. And... Every time someone does it, and that 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 comes across, I find that quite endearing. But it's, I don't think it's easy to do. I think if you're someone mm. who really takes your music seriously, you end up taking yourself too seriously, and you get and you and you get prog. But even yeah. within prog, there there are people who can who can not take themselves too seriously, and um, I think that's yeah, I think that's what we've got here. As in, I think maybe, and it's less about like a ha 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 funny and more like, ho ho ho, this is such a, (laughs) this is such a, like, it's such a witty little tale you're spinning here. And, you know, and I feel like this is um, Genesis's biggest hit of this era will be I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe, which is just a little slice of life about a, a simpleton mowing lawns, as far as I understand. And again, it's jaunty and humorous in in a Beatles-ish way. This is obviously more in your face with its humor or whatever they're doing here. They're taking meth. That's what they're doing. (laughs) No, and I was going to say, I think it's, and I I don't mean humor in the flight of the Concords, like funny song, but it isn't like... It's cheeky, but it's not hilarious. Cheeky, exactly. Yes, it's cheeky. Yeah, someone letting their hair down. Letting their hair down with... Intense improvisational jazz. <laughs> so, what else are we feeling here? You have strong opinions about this hit single. I hate the song. I just think it's. I don't know. I also, it's this is very personal to me, but I, I also just 
like gag when I think of cat food and <laughs> I gag when I think of the song. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So if if they just simply changed the lyrics a little bit, would you like it better? No, because I the, the the comment earlier about a cat walking on the keyboard is also kind of how I feel. Like that's it, it's just like. I don't know. It's funny. Meth, it's not meth, because I think they'd be too hyped up. They'd be just like doing keyboard <laughs> solos and Mellotron solos. Well, I don't think they're recorded on meth. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that, though. Oh, well, that, that might be more interesting, like an 18 minute <laughs> key, like Mellotron solo or something. That could be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, so you say no to the subject, no to the <laughs> song. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm done even talking about it. I just I'm over yeah, it. That's fine. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> Visceral response to that song. <laughs> we'll talk about Elton John's song about paninis later. <laughs> so more to your taste. Um, I heard I heard somewhere that Elton John was somehow involved with this, but Fripp was not cool with it. Yep, a young Elton John was uh, going to be tapped to be the vocalist. But uh, then he went off to become Elton John. Um, oh, what a different world we would have lived in. <laughs> yep. Imagine Prog Elton. Oh, my God. I, th- I mean, he could have done it. Well, oh, yeah. Yeah, he could have done it. He's got, a, like, he's got a wonderful voice, and I think it actually has the same quality as Greg Lakes. Kind of, kind of full and epic-y, and uh, he's got a pretty good range. But I, obviously he goes on to produce lots of, of his own music, and I can't imagine being a hired singer for Robert Fripp. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have said to skip the Devil's Triangle. Did anyone have a strong desire to talk about it? No, good. Not really. I mean, it's, it's the most forgettable of all the songs on the first two albums. But they do, they do sample themselves on it, which is interesting. I don't know how easy that is to do with with the you know the tape technology they they had at the time. It it probably was difficult to to make this track. To, to yeah. produce this with only the experience of producing one over album beforehand is is interesting. I, you know, I wouldn't have gone to that trouble personally. It, it, just because they could doesn't mean they should. Mean they should. <laughs> I think the the only backstory to this is they uh, would play Gustav Holst's song Mars live, and then they just couldn't get the rights for it in the studio. <laughs> So they're just like, we'll basically just make it, but weird. Um, so that's it. That's why it's included. In, incorporating the classics is very, you know, prog rock. Like I think there's a, yeah. I didn't catch it, but apparently there's a riff from Oklahoma in Moonchild. In the nine minutes we didn't listen to, or <laughs> uh, this is this is where I'm not sure because I don't know Oklahoma, and I don't know Moonchild, frankly. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're screwed. <laughs> Just gonna go around yeah, he's circles. willing to do the, the, the study on both those items together, yeah. huh? not me. <laughs> also, can you imagine 1950s Roger and Hammerstein, where they just do a vibraphone <laughs> Whoever brought it up, it was a good point. So this also very much where, where Prague will go incorporating the classical music stuff. I think where they do this successfully is with someone like Yes where they sit down and actually write sweet melodies and then come up with counterpoints and then make it into movements. I think where it's unsuccessful is this, and then we'll talk about Abaddon's Bolero from ELP, and there's going to be lots of moments 
where prog bands just like, you know, you like it. Like, check <laughs> this out. Five, six, seven minutes of this. And uh, the world said no, but they kept doing it. <laughs> so that was In the Wake of Poseidon, the sophomore album from King Crimson. So, Ryan, where do King Crimson go over the next two albums, uh, taking us then to their rebirth in 1973? So, as you mentioned earlier, uh, they go on to fully disappear up you know where. Where they end up going with with Lizard and Islands is so unfocused that it's it's unbelie- it's really hard to listen to. There's some there's some standout tracks. I still think some of the melodies are fun, but other than that, yep. you can skip them entirely and you won't miss much. Uh, but what will happen, and not to tease the next episode about these guys too much, but uh, they recruit Bill Bruford, who has finally had enough of Yes's. Um, fun-loving uh, approach to approach to Prague and wants to get wants to go back in the dark with both Robert Fripp and John Wetton, a gentleman with a booming voice and uh, some funky bass work, takes them to a completely different direction and arguably a completely different band. Yeah, so we'll pick back up with King Crimson in, in two years, their time, yep. which is equivalent of a handful of weeks our time. Uh, but in the meantime, where does this sit for all of you guys in the history of Prague? And maybe the history of music in general? I guess I'll kick us off with, for me, this sits in the history of Prague as the first Prague album. That's where we're at. This is where it all starts. As we've hit on, there's lots and lots and lots of elements that will be used by other bands. Fantastical lyrics, high virtuosity, focus on the album, and kind of bombastic stage and album presence will be hallmarks of Prague going forward. And and also them kind of sucking in all sorts of uh, musical influences. Oh, if I may um, leave us with um, the thoughts of the Dean of American Rock Critics, Robert Kreisgau's thoughts on these two albums. So uh, he gave In the Court a D plus. So his review is, the plus is because P- Peter Townsend likes it. This can also be said of the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Uh, beware the forthcoming hype. This is Ursat's shit. And uh, for In the Wake, he gave a C plus. And he says, and I quote, For a long time, I thought this was the worst rock band in history simply because it was the most pretentious. But sometimes pretensions are at least partially earned. The second album is more muddled conceptually than In the Court of the Crimson King, quite a feat. But they're not afraid to be harsh. They command a range of styles and their dynamics jolt rather than sledgehammer. Properly electric that. Also, they can play. Kudos to drummer Robert Giles and, and guitarist Robert Fripp, who illustrate the old adage, better a Mellotron than real strings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, sorry, you can cut this out. But um, confusingly, his, his um, ratings of King Crimson improve. He gives Red an A-, and the album, which I have never heard of, but apparently it's a live album, USA, a B+. Well, I think Red's the only album they have without any uh-ohs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As far as where is this going and why. Well, I guess maybe Providence a little there bit. There we go. Yeah. Well, that also is the, actually, I think if I'm getting this right, that is the most pretentious thing, one of the most pretentious things of all time in prog rock, where Bill Bruford gets a writing credit 
for deciding not to play anything. <laughs> I mean, then in, in, in that sense, I've applied for writing credits to all of the Beatles songs. <laughs> yeah, you fully credited for your for your impeccable restraint. <laughs> Say, you're welcome. You're welcome, Paul. So that's been the very, very first prog rock album. I have been your host, Ian Prize. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Brian. Wait, do that again. Let's try that again. Smooth. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. Of course, you got it. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you, Ed. Awesome. So there you have it, King Crimson's first two albums. So King Crimson, which was barely even a band at this point, would limp along for two more early 70s albums. But in 1972, Robert Fripp finally called it a day on King Crimson. Until later that year, when he recruited ex-Yes drummer Bill Bruford, and they would reform King Crimson for their string of classic mid-70s King Crimson albums. But next week, an excited world asks, now that prog rock exists, what do we do with it? We might just have an idea, answers yes. Join us next time for the Yes Album. I've just saved the file name as King Ed, which I I enjoy.